Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Okay, welcome to CineLit. We are heading back 50 years to the crime-ridden streets of New York City, to the birth of the war on drugs, and to one of the most iconic decorated crime films of all time. Today we are looking at 1971's Best Picture Oscar winner, The French Connection, and its 1975 sequel. My name is Adam Marsh, and I am joined, as ever, by CineLit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm good, thanks, Adam. Cool. Is it a film? Are these two films that you are um, fans of? Yeah, I love I love French Connection. Um, I quite like bits of French Connection too. It doesn't quite hold together, but I have got I have got sort of theories and takes on it that uh, we might go on to discuss. So uh, I think it's one of those films where if you watch it at face value and absolutely accept everything that is put in front of you on screen. I don't think it's all that good, and it's certainly not as good as the, the brilliant original. But I think if you sort of delve into it a bit, and if you if you sort of look at certain scenes from certain characters' point of view, and, and look at what's going on in the film, and think, is everything that we're seeing actually real here, or is it is is some of it hallucinatory? It it sort of changes French connection to a little bit. So we might get into that later on. Okay, well, well, let's get into that later on because I'm I'm not <laughs> convinced, to be honest, Daryl. I'm not convinced. Okay, so well, the, the thing that struck me when I was doing research for this for this podcast is that the first film was directed by William Friedkin, um, who went on to win the Oscar for this very film yeah. uh, for best director as well as best film. Um, it won. It was nominated for eight, eight Oscars, won five. You know, it was it was a massive, massive critical success and commercial success as well. But this is not Freakin's first film. This is like no. his fifth film as director. And it struck me, looking at those four films that came previously, there's nothing in those four films that indicates that he has a French connection in his locker. No, you know? no. This, this, is, this is almost the first Freakin film. You know, his, his previous work was just, just made by a, a director. You know, he just happens to be the guy sort of calling the shots, you know. This seems personal, you know, and, and this seems to sort of set the stage for the rest of his career. It, it is interesting because when you look at his career, I mean, even though even though this does set the stage for his career and give him the opportunities to do the things that he wants to do, 
the, the first four movies, you've got like a Sonny and Cher comedy. You've got like an adaptation of Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party. You've got a star-studded um, comedy, The Night They Raided Minsky's. Where, where, where Bill Friedkin teams up with Norman Wisdom. Norman Wisdom. Never-to-be-forgotten never combo, yeah, yeah. What an odd, odd collection of films, people, people in that yeah, film. Yeah. And then and, he did... And- the Boys in the Band, yeah. The Boys in the Band, yeah. I've not seen that, but I read the description of it. And it's a, a heterosexual who finds himself at a homosexual party. Now, I'm not, as I say, I've not seen it, but I'm willing to bet it's not aged well. No, you know, I, I wonder, would it make a, a great double bill with uh, with Cruising or not, which is very, very much a Friedkin film, a very sort of personal Friedkin film, you know. And, and um, you wonder if The Boys in the Band... Along vaguely similar themes, but but you know, with with completely different treatments, I think. So it's interesting. You've got you've got two two movies there by the same director, ten years apart, on a very similar sort of theme, but completely different in many respects. And one of them a, a far more personal film than the other, I think. It's not often directors get an opportunity to, I guess, shift careers a little bit, like Freakin did here. I mean, I guess it was easier back in the seventies. Certainly today, there's not that many people who are who have four or five films already directed that suddenly have a coming out film. You know, a film five. Usually, yeah. their careers have, have been and gone by then, and they just they found their groove, and that's what they do. I mean, the ones that leap to mind recently, I suppose, are more comedy directors who moved into into drama and thrillers and things like that. So, like people like Adam McKay and Jay Roach and uh, Peter Farrelly, I guess, with Green Book. Um, yeah, yeah. But say, but but we're talking freaking, freaking. He, he seems like he seems like a director that really. I mean, you talk about him being personal, personal film, French Connection. I think it's definitely a film that um, establishes style as a director. Or, or his coming back part is a director. This is, this is freaking as a director. I I think he would love to have made a career just just directing comedies though, because he's yeah, he, yeah. he has a few stabs at comedies throughout his career. None of them, none of them seem to land, you know, throughout his career. Um, obviously, he keeps getting called back to do horror, and he keeps getting called back to do crime stuff. And people do tend to see French Connection as the start of his career. And I think Francis Ford Coppola was very similar to this. He, he of course, supposedly got The Godfather on the basis that he, he was it was it was sort of him or Martin Scorsese were the only two uh, sort of semi-Italian directors in in the movie business, you know. And and of course Hollywood at this point, 1971, is also looking at. You know, they're they're thinking, well, you know, John Ford and Howard Hawks and Hitchcock aren't going to be around forever. You know, we've we've got to tap into whether we like it or not. We've got to tap into some of this new talent, this this film school talent that's emerging. And I think Friedkin may well have benefited from that a little bit, you know. And uh, and and so suddenly films like French Connection were coming along, and it was this younger breed of director that was getting assigned to them, very much like Kirk Coppola did with the with the Godfather. 71 as well crime films are, are, are in the zeitgeist with stuff like dirty harry and so on yeah freakin may well have just been in the right place at the right time with this one but uh, boy did he did he pick it up and run with it yeah i mean I'll, I'll, the, the film's quite an interesting film it's basically a, a police procedural <laughs> kind of film which follows a drug bust it's based on a non-fiction book from 1961 um about a, about a drugs bust and yeah you know, and it follows it fairly 
fairly straight in a way it's filmed. It's filmed in a very documentary style, which Friedkin obviously decided that was the right take for this this material. But yeah, what do you what do you think to this to the style of it? It's, it's very unique at this period, I guess. It's not it's certainly not Dirty Harry. It is. It's 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 something new, which I think is why is why it came to the attention of people like the Academy Awards Committee. You know, you've you've had Bullet two or three years before this with its famous car chase. You know, we'll discuss the chase in this film in detail later. But uh, Friedkin takes the idea of the chase, which. I mean, Bullet sort of set a new bar for that, you know, and, and then along comes Friedkin and he does something completely different with his and says, look, OK, you, you've seen a great conventional car chase in Bullet, you know, that, that has sort of re-established what the idea of that that type of movie action can be. Now, look what I've got in my locker, you know. But yeah, I think the documentary style is is a good fit for him too, and and that's something that he's sort of continued a little bit. This this very cold sort of tone that the film has gotten, very matter of fact and very clinical. I think he then applied to horror with the with The Exorcist, and he applied to um, a, a film remake with with The Sorcerer, um, with Sorcerer uh, remaking uh, The Wages of Fear, and then applied that very similar tone to much of his later career. You go through films like Cruising and Rampage and so on. I think French Connection is the film that establishes that William Friedkin tone. But I think in turn, he may well have taken that from this this subject matter and from this material. And I think this film may have influenced him as as much as he influenced it. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he talked about how he'd seen the film Zed. Yeah, uh, and that was a big influence on him as well, um, uh, to the point of casting as well. He asked, yeah, he, yeah. he asked to get the, the one of the cast members of Zed and got the wrong one in Fernando Rey. Apparently, that's that's <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think he, I think he'd seen he'd seen Francisco Rabal in um, also in um, uh, Bunuel's uh, Belle de Jour. Yeah, and um, um, he went to a casting agent and said, "There's this Spanish actor. I can't remember his name, but he's in all these European films. He's worked a lot with Bunuel, you know." And they they sort of uh, introduced him to Fernando Rey, and and he said, "Oh, that's that's not the guy," but but then went ahead with him anyway. And and he's brilliant. He's he's a he's a great fit for the the, the villain of this piece. He doesn't speak French though. <laughs> it's, no, quite, no, no. it's quite fascinating. They, they had to they had to redub him when when they when they sent the the, the film abroad. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, these these Europeans are all the same, aren't they? It, it literally, when, when, when you're in Hollywood in 1971. Well, absolutely. Yeah, there's certainly some in, in, inbaked racism in, in this film, anyway, with the characters of Doyle and um, and and Claudie Russo. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about Popeye Doyle because yeah. he's, he's 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 not again. This is something sort of new, I, I think, for Hollywood and for sort of mainstream crime cinema. This this guy is not a hero in any sense, you know. In fact, I I I think that he again he sort of sets a bit of a template here for the actor Gene Hackman because Hackman was to go on to play characters who um, specifically in, um, in in films like The Conversation soon after this and then in uh, Enemy of the State some years later, played these sort of characters with a very sort of obsessive drive to, to the point where it almost makes them ill, you know, and it almost takes over their lives. And I think Popeye's like that. I, I, I think there are, there are moments in the French Connection, and it spills over to French Connection too, I think, which we'll talk about later, where... 
you can't really sort of root for this guy, not just because he's a very sort of unlikable and, and sort of borderline racist character and seems to sort of hate his job and hate everyone around him and hate every, all, all of his sort of fellow detectives and officers and so on. He's, he's very much a loner. I think he's very much at the centre of his own world. Um, he's, he's in the police simply because it gives him a means of, of just putting an intense focus on what he does in his job following it right through to the end and not caring who he hurts, including himself, in, in the, the pursuit of reaching his goal. There's a scene in The French Connection where um, there's suspicion that uh, drugs are being smuggled in, in a motor vehicle and they the, the police impound it and call it into their uh, private garage to sort of dismantle the car. So they've got experts involved in this and they can't find anything. And Hackman's going berserk. Popeye's going berserk at this. You know, why can't you go? You guys are supposed to be good at this. Why can't you find anything? And they're sort of saying, there's there's nothing here. You know, we've we've looked everywhere that we usually look. We've taken the car to pieces um, on your instruction. And we're telling you there's nothing here. And um, he's still insisting that they do more, that they look for more, that they look in places they don't normally look, you know. But, you know, we we won't sort of spoil this for people that haven't seen the film. We won't tell them the outcome of the scene. But whatever the outcome of that scene was, whether they found anything or whether they didn't, you sense that Popeye Doyle's approach to this would have been exactly the same. It would have been, it would have been forensic, but to the point of obsession and to the point of madness. And I think that spilled over into his character in the conversation. Yeah, I mean, that scene, the scene where they're ripping the car apart and t- literally tearing it to pieces, ripping it to pieces, it kind of bothered me because they've got to give that car back and yeah, they've got yeah, to make yeah. it look like it, they, they haven't ripped it apart and they rip it to pieces. And it, yeah, I, I, but, it's a little thing. It should bother you because I, I get the impression this is all down to Popeye Doyle's instruction and he's, do, he's just thinking... You know, it's not my responsibility that we get this car back together. You guys are employed to do that. I've got this drive. I've got this absolute obsession with 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 nailing these people and nailing the the Mr. Big, you know, and I'm almost making myself ill doing that. And if as a consequence of that, I make a mechanic's day a little more difficult than it ought to be, I don't care. You know, and, and he's, 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 he's just not got any empathy for anyone, including himself. And uh, I, 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 I think it's a brilliant characterization. I think it's brilliantly played. And there's no attempt on Hackman's part to make this guy likable either. No, some, I mean, some, act, some actors would try to do that with this character. He doesn't. No, I mean, Hackman's fantastic in the role. And it is quite remarkable that he was by no means the first, the first option for this role. They literally seem to go through the Rolodex of Hollywood actors. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, again, again, his career at that time as an actor is pretty much in, in the, the same place that Friedkin was as a director. You know, he'd made a bit of a splash in films like Bonnie and Clyde and stuff. Um, but but he, he wasn't a sort of go-to guy at that point. You know, this is, again, this is this is the film that made him that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, but like they couldn't afford Paul Newman, that's who they wanted, apparently. But they had the literally Jackie Gleason, Peter Boyle, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, Rod Taylor. It's like literally literally anybody, anybody other than Gene Hackman, it seems to be. <laughs> until he finally went, oh go on then, we'll have Gene Hackman. 
And it's yeah, like, yeah. what? What? It's astonishing that it could have slipped away. It could have slipped away. It could have been just a footnote in Paul Newman's career or a footnote in Steve McQueen's career. Yeah, and and it would have been as well yeah. because they would have played this part in a very conventional way. They, they, you can imagine Newman or McQueen playing this in a very Newman and or McQueen type way, and it wouldn't have been one of the best remembered movies of their career. No, no. It would have just been another role. It would have been another notch, you know, and uh, it would have been a competent film. I think both of those actors would have seen the poor character traits within uh, within Popeye and would have played on those a little bit, but they, they would have had to make him likeable in certain scenes or have him having a few sort of nice one-liners or little wisecracks or winking at the camera every now and then just to say, yeah, I'm, I'm playing a bastard, but it's Paul Newman playing him and, uh, you know, you love me, you love me, don't you? you know? And Hackman could come into this without any of that baggage and just say, I'm just going to be ruthless and storm my way through this film and I don't care who gets hurt, you know, Popeye doesn't care who gets hurt. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fact. I mean, you talk about talking about Popeye again. He's an interesting character in that we don't really learn that much about him. No, no. it's all the job. It's all the obsession. We get hints at it. We see him in his apartment, which is a, a tip, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I love that. The first thing we see of him is he's he's dressed as Santa Claus. Yeah, he's dressed as Santa Claus. Yeah, it's, it's, which, which is far it's just, away. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's brilliant because because. Not only does that tell you nothing about the guy, it actually, it's a brilliant choice by Freak in there that, that um, uh, you know, not only is he sort of trying to, to, to not tell you anything about this guy, this guy he, he, he actually sort of obfuscates it a little bit. There's, there's a bit of trickery there saying, oh, you, this, guy is, this guy is Santa Claus, you know, you love Santa. And then we find out, no, we, we, we ain't going to like this Santa. And, um, and then the character just gets progressively more and more obsessed and less and less likeable as the film goes on. I mean, he's got this partnership going on with Roy Scheider and Scheider isn't a particularly likeable character in this film either. But compared to Popeye Doyle, he's he's the guy you'd like to go and have a pint with afterwards. You know, you'd, 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 he'd, he'd be your mate out of, uh, out, out of the, the, the crew here, you know. It's very similar to what we saw in British films and TV over the next five or six years, I suppose, culminating in things like the Sweeney. You know, it's very much that sort of dynamic, this partnership where you don't actually like any of the guys involved and they don't like their job. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you, you get you do get you do get hints at where he is and where he fits into the world, mainly from his um, from his from the stakeouts from from the trailing of the uh, the, the French guy, you know, Charnier. Yeah, he, he's yeah. he's the the well-to-do, uh, rich kingpin, likes the finer things in life, and you have that really nice scene where they're in that cafe, in that in that restaurant, eating ridiculous amounts of really expensive fine fine dining and you've got Popeye across the street in his dirty Mac eating a pizza out of a, a street vendor piece of paper yeah and, and te- terrible coffee that they it's, can't yeah. they can't even get down you know oh it's such a brilliant scene so well intercooked and doesn't look you know it sounds a bit sort of on the nose and a bit cliched and it doesn't play like that at all it plays with all the symbolism that 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 it should do and it really really works it's brilliantly done yeah i mean I, I, particularly because we don't get 
much more information about Popeye's real life and his life outside of work, other than that, that he doesn't have one, you know. Yeah, you are you are learning from him by looking at the slices of pizza that he sort of drooping out of their carton, you know, or as you say, the the the, the brief sort of glimpses of his home life and and uh, the fact that that. He, he sort of hasn't got one, you know, and, and that he lives in this terrible, terrible apartment. Again, this gives the sense that he's, he's, he's almost living the life of, of, of like a street rat or something. And it's not even to the point where, oh, he, he, come, he comes alive when he's doing detective work because he doesn't even give that impression. You know, yeah. it is it is just constantly this this got to catch the villain, got to get there, got to do whatever I've got to do to nail these these guys. And uh, and, and then you, you do sense even, even if, if he caught a criminal, he wouldn't be satisfied. He wouldn't have a sense of achievement. It would just be, OK, that job's done, on to, on to the next one, on to the next terrible job that I've got to haul myself out of bed in the morning to do. You know, there's there's no sense of satisfaction with this character. One of the interesting one of the interesting things about this, uh, you, you you touched on it a little earlier when we were talking about the uh, the symbolism of the two dining sequences. You have, I guess, the most important. It won a lot of it won a lot of awards. This film, but one of the most important ones that it was recognised for was film editing. And this yeah. movie seems to live or die on the way it's edited. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so well cut together. It's so well put, particularly because the whole film. It's essentially one long stakeout trailing. You know, it moves from one yeah, come come pursuit yeah, yeah pursuit yeah. yeah. So it, 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 there's not much more to it in some ways. There's obviously a lot more to it uh, subtextually, <laughs> but yeah. the actual plot is them doing the footwork, oh, following people. Much. Yeah, absolutely. And when it's what he said, he's like he doesn't even get a satisfaction out of doing detective work. He's like, there's not much detective work done in this film. You know, in in the sense of like, it's not like a Sherlock Holmes where he discovers a clue and that leads him to this amazing revelation. And then it's not, it's just general footwork, you yeah, know, yeah. a la Dragnet. You know, it's that kind of, it's like a hardcore, bitter, cynical Dragnet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, again, it's it's the sort of boring side of police work. And, and we, we talked about this on the Walter Matthau podcast recently, where we were talking about laughing policemen and how that does very much the same. You know, that sort of follows that that takes the idea of the police procedural to its ultimate in in that you're sort of following all all the lines that go nowhere as well. And there's a sort of sense of that in French connection. You know, we certainly see the failures of police work as well as the successes. And I, either way, not not it doesn't seem to matter. It just it just seems to be played as a job here and not a very satisfying job and one that everyone who does it seems to hate, you know, and uh, and Popeye absolutely sort of embodies that. Um, He's almost a poster boy for for the working day-to-day copper who hates his job, you know, and all this really adds to the tone of the film as well, I think. And it's amazing how gripping and how exciting and how audience-friendly it becomes, given that, that Everything that Friedkin's doing and everything that the the actors are doing seems to play against that. And I I, I think you've hit on the, the film's success and how it connects with an audience is through the editing process. I, I I think it just moves and moves and moves, and it tells its story through editing and it tells its symbolism through editing. I mean, take the classic scene where um, Hackman and Ray are on the subway platform and. Fernando Ray knows that that Popeye is is after him. 
Popeye sort of knows that he knows, but he's not quite sure. And they're getting on and off the same subway carriage and trying to fool each other. And again, the the the, the editing there and, and the, the, the use of close-up and knowing when to, to do a long shot or a medium shot, when to show both guys in frame in, in the carriage or coming in and out, it's, it's brilliant. And, and we get right inside the heads of those characters, and that's done largely through the editing combined with, I think, their, their facial expressions, because there's no dialogue in that scene, you know, very, very little. Um, it's all done with their sort of glances to camera, their expressions, their looks to each other, the shots where you've got other other sort of commuters and other train passengers in between them, uh, and you just get a glimpse of an eye or half a face or something, you know. And it, it that's all played out through the edit. Yeah, I mean that sequence, arguably for me. I mean the the car chase gets a lot of the a lot of the uh, credits and a lot of the. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, press and coverage for it but but for me that sequence is is the, is the key one for me um I, I, I love how they 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 build on the sequences prior to that so you have them following the 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 the, the, the sunny character is sunny yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the italian guy they, they have them following him and they show how they would normally tail someone and there's about eight people involved. They're crisscrossing when they get spotted, they move on and somebody else comes on board and it's got a really wonderful flow to it where you see how they can tail a suspect really successfully. And then they had, then obviously later on, they have this sequence with Gene Hackman following Charnier and it's just him, him yeah, having yeah, to do it all yeah, on his own. Yeah. And, and it's a adding failure. to the it, it's a it, failure, but it adds to that tension yeah, as well. Yeah, you yeah. know that this is not going to be. It's not a case of just like oh, he's going to tail him. It's not a problem. You know that how they tail people involves eight people crisscrossing, and it takes. That's how they do it successfully. Yeah. And now he's on his own, and we're going to show you how difficult it is to tail someone. Mm-hmm. And that was really clever. The way that the setup was really clever. That yeah. it added to that tension. The scene. Yeah. I think the scene also works as a pivotal moment because if you if you think about Michael Mann's Heat from the the late eighties and how I'm I'm not not a massive fan of Heat I have to say mm-hmm. and uh, but but the the people who love it always rave about oh there's there's this great moment where you know the the film keeps De Niro and Pacino apart all the way through but uh, there's this one scene where they meet in the middle and and it's great and it's this great iconic scene. I think this scene in French Connection may well have inspired that, and I think it's the equivalent of that scene. And it's 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 done in about one tenth of the time, and it's it's miles better for my for my money. I I I, I think what that scene does is the same as what he tried to do, and I think it does it much more successfully because it, it's briefer and it's there's less dialogue and it's all done with these little glances and you never know what the the other guy's thinking, um, but. What, what what that does is it pits these two titans of the film, these two gods of the film, against each other, yeah. just just for a moment. Yeah, I mean, you've got to have that moment where they face off. You know, you yeah. can't I mean, yeah. that's, yeah. that's what I mean. Arguably, he, you didn't need that scene. You should have had them separate yeah. and, and live in their own movies, you know what I mean? But yeah. 
they were never going to do that. But you, you do need that crossover. And again, it's brilliantly handled in the edit. It's well handled by Friedkin, keeping it so very, very brief and confining it to just that sort of minute or so of screen time and not, not making a big deal of it in the way that Michael Mann did. You know, his, his film sort of says, oh, we're bringing our two stars together now. Everybody look. You know, you've got to look at this and listen and watch the method acting here and watch De Niro and Pacino play off against each other. And it's so understated in French Connection, and and because of that, I think it works better. Well, I think I think also in Heat, you, you you he's obviously playing on years of of Pacino and De Niro yeah, being back, back the guys. Yeah. So, but but for me, that throws you out of the movie because you're not sitting there thinking these characters are meeting. You're thinking, oh my god, it's Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in a scene together. And you're supposed to think that, and it sort of. Far from being a highlight of the film for me, it sort of kills it because of that. You know, suddenly, yeah, you're you're at method school now, guys. You know, you in the audience sit and watch how great these guys are, you know. And the French Connection doesn't do that. It's watch Popeye Doyle getting his job wrong yet again and going away and mooching around and thinking what a failure he is and how the bad guys got away and and uh, how terrible his life is you know it's it's completely different it's it's so similar in some respects and yet it's it's pulled apart in others and and it's just brilliant it's just so good for this film one of the things that struck me as i was watching the first particularly the first 10 15 minutes was just the lack of music um, and I thought, oh, my God, is this, is this going to be like this all the way through the film? Because if so, it's brilliant. And it wasn't. And what they did is they, they had no music and then they slowly introduced music yeah, yeah. to punctuate the scenes as it went on. I mean, nowadays you have music telling you what to think, what to, what to <laughs> at every point in the movie. You know, it doesn't matter. Some guy going into a toilet, you know, you've got music accompanying everything. Yeah, yeah. Here there was just nothing accompanying nothing in the early scenes. And for me, that made me pay attention more. Exactly. It was more like it was like, all right, for God's sake, this is bloody important. Pay attention. I'm not even gonna have music on. Listen and what watch what's happening. Bloody concentrate. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I agree. And and while we're on music, I mean this is a big personal thing for me, but to, the, the first music you get in the film is about 10 minutes in, and it's not soundtrack, it's not score, it's the three degrees. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm there, take my ticket money now, you know. Uh, a movie that's that promises you the three degrees in the first 10 minutes. It's whatever it is, I'm there, you know. So uh, the fact that it's the French connection is is just brilliant, you know. It's so good that that uh, it sort of starts with that. But you go to the three degrees, having had the scene where Scheider and Hackman have done a, a drugs raid at a predominantly uh, uh, sort of black customized uh, bar, you know, black, black patronized bar. And the racism and, and the treatment of the suspects there and the treatment of the people who aren't suspects, that there are there are obviously a lot of innocent people in that place, you know. And to Hackman, they're all just like, well, we know we know you've got drugs hidden somewhere, you know. And it sets who this guy is, you know, straight away. Mm-hmm. It, certainly in terms of his attitude, not necessarily, I, 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 I don't know that it is racist necessarily. It just happens to be that this is a, a, a black um, patronised bar that he goes to. You sense that if he went to an Italian or Chinese neighbourhood or any New York bar, he'd be the same, you know, whether whether the guys were white or whatever, you know, it, 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 he'd treat them just as scum. Well, yeah, but I think there was definitely profiling involved. 
in yeah, in, in yeah. a way, and because obviously when when they finish and and um, Russo Roy Scheider's character comes out and he and he's, he's hurt his hand through the through the through the fight sequence, he had a knife. He said, like, "Well, of course he had a knife." You know, he's like, yeah. and it wasn't it wasn't because it like, we could have been white. He's like, yeah, but you know, doesn't matter. Yeah. Does it? You know, yeah. You know, yeah. we know they all carry. You know, it's that kind of mentality. I, I think the thing the thing that backs up my theory there though is a big big thing. It's a big central point in the movie. It's the fact that uh, their code name for Charnier is Frog One. Mm. <laughs> oh yeah, don't get me wrong. He's a he 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 he, he doesn't. He doesn't discriminate in his discrimination. <laughs> no, he's an, he's an all-encompassing racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, let's get let's get on to the to the to the to the to the meat and potatoes of this film and the car chase sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, my my first thing to say about that is I I don't think it's is is it a car chase? Is the well, first it's thing not chasing that. a car; it's using no, a no, car no. to chase a train. <laughs> a, a lot a lot of it takes place on foot as well, and um, the 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 car that Hackman is using is a stolen car. He's he's supposedly commandeered it from from. Uh, a, a, a commuter on his way home, but the way that he does that is is it's almost like robbery. It's it's almost like the way that a criminal would 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 take somebody's car, you know. And and um, yeah, so there are all these components. And again, as I, as I say, Bullet has sort of set the tone for what a movie car chase is. And here's Friedkin completely overturning that and and trying to do everything. As, as possibly different as he can, you know, have it, only having one car involved, as you say, having it as a stolen car, effectively, um, having a lot of the a lot of the work done as, as as sort of footwork, you know, a lot of it sort of running from place to place. The chase is is with a sort of runaway um, sort of elevated rail train that's that's hurtling through Brooklyn. So even even without the police on 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 the tail, you know, it'd be an exciting scene if it was just about the runaway train, you know. But uh, with with the driver having a heart attack and um, and the, and the sort of train officials being being shot at and so on, that'd be great in itself. The fact that you've got this this police chase taking place under underneath on, under the elevated line is brilliant. And then. When things happen like the the Hackman again is so 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 very obsessed with with attaining his goal that he he doesn't care who he who he might run over or run into or which cars he might crash into on the way you know or the fact that he might beat this guy's car up in the same way that the the the, the drug car gets gets sort of trashed later on it's it's a very very interesting sort of parallel there it's all about again it's all about his obsessive drive to get the job done. Yeah, I mean, his 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 obsessive drive doesn't have an end point either. No. You know, it, it doesn't matter if he catches the guy and books him or he shoots him dead. You know, yeah. it, it's yeah. still there's no sort of line that he doesn't seem to be wanting to shy from crossing. You know what I mean? Sure. So, what 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 are your thoughts on the chase then, Adam? Oh, it's brilliant! It's brilliant. I mean, I like I like it's funny how I like I like how they mix it up in the, in the, like you say that some of it's on foot, some of it's in the train, and just the idea of of, of a a car chasing a train <laughs> it, underneath the elevated rails is it, it, a brilliant idea. I mean, they, they echo it a little bit in the, in the second film yeah. where they have um, Gene Hackman 
chasing a boat on foot. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. And again, again, um, using a streetcar for part of the journey. So it's hopping on and off that and running for part of it and uh, doing his whole sort of fat, sweaty cop a bit, you know. And uh, um, that's the scene I want to talk about in detail later on when we get on to French Connection too. But yeah, there are definite parallels there. And and, and you, you do sense that, that John Frankenheim is thinking, well, yeah, we... It's French. It's a movie with the words French and connection in the title. People have got certain expectations here, you know, and uh, I think French Connection 2 does play against those expectations very, very well. But I think in that scene, which which sort of forms the finale of the film, there are definite nods to uh, to what Friedkin did here. Again, again how, how great is the editing in, in The Chase as well? It, it's brilliant. I think one of the, one of the things, I mean, just, 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 just dial back a little bit, because the editing is fantastic, but we one of the things that about you talked we talked about um uh, Popeye being obsessive. I think the other thing to 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 throw in the mix here is, is like just his his place in New York City. Mm. And he he feels comfortable in New York City. It's his yeah. town. Yeah. Whether 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 it's a black neighborhood, whether it's an Italian neighborhood, it's his still his town. Yeah. He's the guy, he's the man. So taking all taking a, a car, he doesn't see that as robbery. He's not. He's not comedy. He's comedy. That's his bloody car. Yeah. It's my town. It's yeah. my town. It's my car. It's my town. I'm taking that car, and that guy's going down. You know. So it's that kind of all overwhelming arrogance. Yeah. Of yeah. the character. That's part of his obsessive character. I think. Mm. You know. He thinks he owns New York, but not not in the way that that. Um, the, the the sailors in on the town arrive there for a day in in 1948 and sort of take over the town for 24 hours you know this is not a good reclamation of new york you know it's 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 not a good ownership of the town it's 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 part of his rotting horrible sort of character as as you say his idea of taking ownership of new york and being the boss of new york is is that he can he can steal somebody's car anytime he likes. You know, he's a cop and he can do what he wants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think to go back onto the editing, yeah, the editing is brilliant in this thing. All the way through the movie, it's it's tense and and this just amps up the tension. And then the music comes on board as well. And this particular it kind of culminates in this particular car sequence. Yeah. All those things that they've been slowly building as the movie goes along. Yeah, Friedkin's so good at that because you know he 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 almost sort of invents MTV editing at points in this chase, but but he always knows when to rein back as well. It starts very very slowly, it ends very slowly, but it sort of reaches a climax. You know, it builds and builds and builds, and you get to the point where suddenly there's this fast editing going on of a, of a type that Hollywood didn't really know. Uh, directors like George Romero had introduced it into the the sort of independence in the late 60s lots and lots of fast cutting um in in films by some of those more sort of underground filmmakers at the time but Friedkin's bringing that into the mainstream but he's doing it in a way that Hollywood can accept he's sort of slowly introducing the idea by building the scene on on from a slow basis and reaching a, a crescendo and then sort of easing back off again it's great and, and if you think about um he he did he did a movie called jade uh um 20 years or so later sort of mid 90s and um, and that's that's got a great car chase in which is sort of the antithesis of um french connection in one way in that it's a car chase that takes place in uh snarled up traffic in in a, a in in gridlock you know and the cars are moving at about 
half a mile an hour. And um, having said that, there is a sense of that in 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 this movie because you do see um, vehicles stuck in traffic early on. You know, before the before the chase starts. And so Friedkin's obviously filed that idea away because William Friedkin and his editor knows what's coming later on. They're brave enough to start that scene in an ultra slow way, you know, knowing that they're going to reach this point where they're going to have you absolutely on the edge of your seat, you know. But then he, he obviously filed that idea away and thought, well, when by, by the time he came to do Jade, it was like, well, we'll completely reverse that and I'll now do... The, the, the slowest car chase in cinema history because I'm the car chase guy. I think I think that's a way in which you can see how how the French connection has sort of fed into his uh, his his career. I think there are a lot of ways in which this film has, has sort of uh, affected the rest of what he's done um, over the next sort of four or five decades. And that's a point to make about this. The films the film is uh, fifty years old this year. Yeah, no, it's fifty years old now, but. Before we move on to the sequel, has this film's influence lasted? I think it, it had a fairly instant influence. Yeah. And I I think the cop film has sort of changed. Um, I, I, I think a few films had an influence. We've we mentioned some of them already. Dirty Harry from the same year. Some of the Walter Matthau stuff that we talked about. And, and that whole wave of early 70s crime cinema had an influence to a certain point, I think. I think a new wave of, of, of cop and crime movie came along in the 80s, the sort of Miami Vice type type thing. And I, I think that almost sort of subsumed the, the influence of the gritty 70s film until you got you got directors like Tarantino and that wave of 90s gangster films sort of brought some of that gritty 70s style back for a while. But I think people are now more influenced by the 90s gangster movies and by the 80s, the late 80s wave of cop movies rather than directly by this wave of early 70s films. So if they are influenced by the 70s movies and by French Connection in particular, it's almost by a process of osmosis. I think it's filtered through Tarantino and filtered through the 90s directors who sort of homage these these movies in their later work. I don't think the French Connection is necessarily seen as a film that people want to copy these days. No, I, I would heartily agree with that. I could, I, you can see the influences in, like, say, 20 years, up to 20 years after it came out. But once you get to the 90s, even 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 those 90s directors, they're, they're taking the editing, I think, as, as, as part of what they they foresee as, as, as its influence. Yeah, and yeah. Instead of having it in short bursts for poignancy and impact like freaking does they kind of just like inf- that that just becomes the whole movie's edited in that kind of style yeah yeah um, and and of course you know bring bring things right up to date here we are in 2021 and um what what's the what's the mainstream audience's idea of a car chase movie these days it's it's the cgi of uh, fast and furious so things have changed yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's much more going in 60 seconds car chase style um, it, yeah. it, it is the impact now. Um, sure. Yeah. But it's, it, but it's, but it's interesting. It's like because the car chase is not it's not just the car, there's a purpose to the car chase. Yeah. And I think a lot of the Fast and Furious, as much as I love the Fast and Furious movies, 
they feel like they're car chases for the sake of being a car chase. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's move on. Let's move on to the sequel, which we've had big hit, French Connection, eight Oscar nominations, five wins, big box office, made Gene Hackman a star. Gene Hackman's riding high, just a conversation, again nominated for Oscars. Um, he comes back to do the French Connection 2 in 1975, four years uh, have passed since 1971. Hollywood's a very different place in those four sure, years. Sure. Very much, very much, very different, in fact. You know, um, audiences maybe are not wanting slow um, building car sequences. They want killer sharks. They want, I arguably, the blockbuster now. They've had Exorcist. They've had the event movies. They're wanting that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, Fried, uh, Friedkin is is as much responsible for that as anyone with sure. the Exorcist, you know. Sure. But to, and and also, of course, you know, audiences weren't necessarily used to sequels at that time, or certainly the idea that you'd have a sequel with the number two at the end of it. You know, that just wasn't done. You know, and The Godfather had sort of changed that a little bit. It's always said the first movie that called itself Part Two was um, Quatermass Two, The Hammer science fiction film in the 50s and that didn't sort of catch on as a thing you had sequels and you had movie franchises through the 60s then but to the the idea that you'd got a film called the godfather part two was 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 sort of almost unheard of you know and the french connection was one of the first films to sort of respond to that four years between between sequels again was 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 sort of Un, a few years later that was unheard of it was you, you bang your sequel out the year after or two years after you know to have a four-year gap was unusual to call the film French Connection 2 was unusual and um, and again it's, it's something audiences at the time would have still been getting a little bit used to and as you say by this point they'd all seen Jaws as well so yeah I mean, I mean you made the comparison there to the godfather and i i, I see a lot of comparisons to this yeah. i think one of you know coppola came back and did godfather 2 and didn't see it as a way of capitalizing on godfather 1 he saw it as yeah. a, a way of it's, doing it's a, a second movie. great movie yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 um freaking didn't take the opportunity to come back and do a uh, french connection 2 was that was that a mistake on his no, part? No, 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 because we instead of that, we got The Exorcist and we got Sorcerer. And they were the films that he desperately wanted to make. I don't French Connection 2 wouldn't have been a good fit for a director like Friedkin. I mean, we 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 all know the stories about Friedkin uh, you know, allegedly sort of firing firing revolvers on, on the sets of his movies and terrorizing cast and crew. Can you imagine him on on the set of a movie that he didn't want to do, you know, that, that he'd sort of been forced into doing by a producer or or a studio? So yeah, I don't think he he would ever have had an interest in a sequel. He didn't want to do Exorcist 2 either, you know, he's 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 never been that kind of guy but i think i think once once the studio had decided that yeah we're going to have a french connection too they wanted it to be a prestige film they wanted to get a name director and uh they obviously wanted their their stars back interestingly Schneider's not in it and um and, no. and all all we've got is the is the bare bones. We we've, we've got that thing that we talked about earlier. We've got the core of the French connection. We've got Fernando Ray versus Gene Hackman. Yeah, we have, it's a direct sequel. It, it should be said. It's not, not always taken that it's a direct sequel. It's got Popeye going to Marseille to track down Charnier, uh, Fernando Ray, uh, and, and nail him there. Um, it's kind of got like a fish out of water 
American in, in, in Paris kind of vibe to it. It's, so so what, what, what do you think about it, Adam, in general? I think it's one of those things where I don't like it. I'll be honest. I'm mean, the first time I saw it, I thought, the first time I saw it, I enjoyed it. And I thought oh, it was really good. And in my head, I lumped them both together as a sort of like duo of movies. Yeah. And as I watched them again recently, I thought this is really not, this is not working. And that's what it is. It's not so much that like it's a bad film. It's just not working for what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a French Connection movie, and they strip out everything to the point where it's like they're obviously trying to not copy William yeah, Freakin yeah. and just do which, a sequel, which I which I admire. I, I think I think that's great that they've done that. But then they go too far. It sort of doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. but they go too far with it. They take out everything. The only thing that's remaining is Popeye, and it's like, well, really, because the, the villain's just a villain, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You, you take him out of New York so he's not comfortable. So you've got all scenes there. The first film's very much about nailing Mr. Big. Mm. You know, it's about it's, it's it's not about the junkies on the street. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about the the impacts of drugs at that level. It's about the impacts of drugs, uh, the sort of like high end, nailing the big guy, nailing the big the big shipment, that kind of level. And they bring it back down and show the influences of drugs in this movie, which. Yeah doesn't for me doesn't work at all sure, i agree uh, and 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 like you said like they, they lose roy scheider's character who even though he is like a a, a mini doyle <laughs> it's like you know you you can see in about four years time he will be getting yeah. towards being yeah. that kind of character which, which you you get you you got that in the sweeney which i mentioned earlier where you, you look at dennis waterman's character and you think he's going to be jack regan in five years time yeah and that, they actually suggest that in in dialogue in various episodes you know that, that he's he's gonna he's gonna be the same as his boss and yeah you really really got that feel with schneider in, in french connection and i think but, you but, miss that some, yeah yeah Here. we do we do yeah because in some ways it almost humanizes Popeye, yeah, in 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 a way, yeah. Although I I do I do think there there are elements of the film that that retain that obsessive drive and that sort of downside to his character, that dislikability of his character is still there. But yeah, I think because there's more focus on him this time, and and there's not a nicer guy to sort of play off. We sort of go along a bit more with Popeye and he gets a few more little jokey remarks and uh, he's, he's a little bit lighter in this film. I, well, I'm not going to use the word likeable because he isn't, but but there's a, he just edges a little bit more towards that. And I think we, we as, as a sort of Western audience, identify a little bit more and as, as, a, as an English-speaking audience, maybe I should say, we identify... With him as, as that sort of fish out of water character, I think here, and, and he becomes a little bit warmer because of that. A, a little bit. I mean, he's <laughs> not warm, but I, well, you know, it's, it's, it's degrees. You know. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones where even though he's a fish out of water, he still manages to find a black drug dealer to beat up in yeah. the first five minutes. So it, it, he's still the same old Popeye, you know. Yeah. Um, who who doesn't doesn't that guy turn out to be an under undercover cop as well? Yeah. So uh, so yeah yeah. So uh, again, he's he's a failure in France just as much as he is at home, you know. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like it would have been better had it not been called French Connection too. Yeah, I, I think a year earlier it wouldn't have been. It would yeah. it would have been called you know the the the, Mar, the Marseille. Well, no, no. So what I meant was it wasn't involving Popeye. Dale. It was a different character. Having Popeye as a character. Yeah, yeah. for me, I, I can see that. I can see that. Although I do sense that if if you'd cast Hackman in another sort of police part around that time, he'd have probably played it 
as a sort of Popeye spin-off. I think he'd have tried to do different things with it. But I think he does that here anyway. I think his Popeye in this movie is a, a slightly different character to the one that's in the in the French Connection. For one thing, this is a fictional story. It's a fictional sequel to a, a true story original. And as you say, the, the, the elephant in the room, I guess, is the um, huge, huge heroin addiction and cold turkey sequence. Yeah. Now, I've, I've, I've just slagged off heat for having a big, big method scene slapped in the middle of it. And I think that's also the problem with French Connection too. I think the film grinds to a halt so that we can watch Gene Hackman for 20 minutes doing a bit of method acting. Now, you say 20 minutes. <laughs> it's closer to 40 minutes, Daryl. <laughs> no, it really is. It's about 38, 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I didn't time it. I I'll did. Take your, I'll take your <laughs> word for it. It's a third of the film, then. It's the, it's the entire middle of the film. It's the whole second act. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it starts at the 40-minute mark, and then it's 40 minutes of him being hooked on heroin by the criminals, him going through the whole sort of, like, heroin process, him kept being saved by the police, and then him being detoxed and, and going cold turkey, and him being yeah. really grumpy about it and wanting Hershey bars and things like that. You know, it's just like... And, and, it, and it's in, in any other movie, it would have been perfectly fine. It's like, oh, this is really good, if it was a drama. But it's not a drama. We're on a thriller here. This is supposed to be a thriller, you know, yeah. building on French Connection 1. It was a thrilling movie. This is supposed to be a thriller. We have 40 minutes at the start where we have one sequence at the start where they have a, they raid a drugs den. And then the rest of it is him moaning about the, the political intrigue of the police and being, like, um, hated because he's a foreigner and him wandering around Marseille. Yeah. Do you know what you've got here, Adam? You've got, in the French Connection, you've got Gene Hackman casting the lead having been the guy who impressed everyone so much in Bonnie and Clyde, this, this, this sort of relative unknown who's, who's, oh, yeah, we'll try this guy. As you say, we've, we've, we've asked every other actor in Hollywood and nobody wants to do it. So we're now reduced to this Hackman guy, but we all liked him in Bonnie and Clyde. We'll give him a go. What the difference is now, you've got Oscar winner Gene Hackman with a bit of clout, someone who can call the shots. And the shots that he calls here are, I I want a sort of off-Broadway chance to show my chops in the entire second act of the movie. And uh, I want this sort of head-to-head scene. Bits of it are great. I, I love the, I mean, there, there are parts that I love. My, my favourite bit is the sort of conversation where... Um, He's talking with uh, Bernard uh, Fresson playing Barthelemy, who's the sort of French cop who's uh, who he's working with or not working with, as the, as the case may be, you know. And um, there's this lovely bit where um, Barthelemy and Popeye get confused about the names Gene Kelly and Jean-Claude Killy, and uh, the 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 great Hollywood actor and dancer and the the French ski champion, you know. And there are lovely little gags and moments like that within this. But even though I sort of smiled at that point, part of me is thinking, this is all Gene Hackman showing off. He doesn't know the camera's there anymore. You know, this is all about him. He thinks he thinks he thinks he's on stage in some little hundred seat theatre somewhere off Broadway, you know, because he can be, because he's Oscar winner Gene Hackman and he can do what he likes. And yeah, it it's 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 great for him. And there are little moments of it that are, that play well to the audience. 
but it, it kills the film. It kills the film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, like you just said, then it's like there are bits and you like it. So I, I go so far as to say I like all most of the individual bits yeah, of French of Connection too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I mean, all, but when you put it all together as one movie, it just yeah. really doesn't work. It's like having really interesting bits from yeah. other movies. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. like I mean, you, whole... you, yeah, in in the third act, for instance, you know, it's like they've been watching Towering Inferno and Earthquake and the the sort of wave of nineteen seventy three and seventy four disaster movies because um, you you get to you get you get. Um, uh, the, the the hotel the hotel the colonnade being being set on fire and and that's an important scene you know and again it's sort of all part of what Hackman's character is all about and it's all very symbolic as well but suddenly once once the building's burning it turns into five minutes of stunt men and stunt women leaping off collapsing balconies and running down burning sets of stairs, you know. And then you get the scene where the um, the, the, the drug dealers trap Barthelemy and Popeye in, in, in the dam and, and open the sluice gate, you know. And suddenly you're into an action movie. And um, and it's not action in, in the same way that you had action in French Connection. It's what we now think of as conventional movie action. You know, it's sort of shifting the bar a little bit and not necessarily in the way that we wanted it to go. And, and it's not a good fit for Popeye Doyle. It's not what this character's about. No, not at all. He's definitely... Um... A fish out of water in that respect. Yeah. The, the dry dock sequence as well. I mean, just feels kind of like I don't know. It kind of, it kind of feels like they go down into the dry dock, yeah, and they flood it. And it's like, well, what did you expect to happen? Yeah, I know. You no, know, it's like you yeah. stupid cops. You know, it's like why are you going down there? You know? yeah. yeah, this this suddenly this isn't the forensic stroke obsessive. Popeye Doyle, yeah. You 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 could argue that he's 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 still recovering from his ordeal at that point, you know, and he's maybe not quite back up to scratch. But uh, even so, you know, it's it, it it ain't Popeye Doyle at that point. No, I mean we we, we talked we've talked a lot about the sequel already, but uh, we haven't mentioned John Frankenheimer as the no, director. No, no. Um, so he's come on board. Frankenheimer, a, a, a fairly big, relatively big name director, directed Manchurian Candidate. I guess is the one in his back catalogue that people yeah. think, okay, that's what allows him to do French Connection too. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, well, in in the sixties, of course, he he was he was on a roll. You know, he'd done that great trilogy of sort of paranoid movies with um, Manchurian, uh, Seven Days in May, and Seconds. You know, which are all all very different. After doing Seconds, I think Frankenheimer sort of hit the skids a little bit. You know, you look at the films that he made from the late sixties through to the mid seventies. And he's not quite the John Frankenheimer that he once was. I think he's still got sufficient clout for Hollywood to want to look to him as a guy that can helm a French connection to. But I think we're getting we're getting an off-form John Frankenheimer at this point. But yeah, French Connection 2 comes at the end of a period where he's sort of got into a little bit of a rut and um, and he, he, we're not seeing the past glories. Then, having said that, I think I think he, he does a good job on this and he's a good fit for it. He, he does. I mean, and the, the, the off-Broadway uh, drugs uh, <laughs> sequence that we're, we're now dubbing that, um, that, that does feel like it feels in a John Frankenheimer movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the paranoia and the drugs and that kind of stuff that that, it, that feels like it fits yeah, in. So well. as as a little as a little forty minute short directed by John Frankenheimer with Gene Hackman playing a character who isn't Popeye Doyle, we'd we'd love we'd love that. But but in French Connection too, 
you're thinking, why is this in French Connection too? Yeah, just one of the things as well. They bring over Mr. Big from the first movie, the, the, yeah. the Charnier character. Don't seem to do much with him in this no, one he's, either. He's 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 got an almost sort of supernatural aura about him in French Connection. He's kept as a very real character. You know, there's no sense of he he can do magic tricks or or perform miracles or anything. You know, it's not a fantasy, but. I suppose in modern parlance, we call him a supervillain, you know, and uh, but he's he's a very realistic supervillain, you know. There, but there is this sense, and and it's 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 exemplified by that uh, uh, subway carriage sequence that we mentioned, where he's getting on and off the train, and his timing is superb. It's it is almost supernatural, and and he absolutely bamboozles Popeye Doyle getting on and off this subway car. And there's this sense with other things that he done where he can almost vanish into thin air at points. He seems to vanish into thin air at the end of the film. You know, very, very enigmatic ending to French Connection, which to this day, I, I don't know what happens. And I don't know what happens because Fernando Ray and the Charnier character are so magical that there's a sense that, yeah, poof, he could just disappear. And and or he could at least hide in a place where he'll never be found, you know. And and so that gunshot that goes off at the end could be a, a futile shot from Hackman. I don't know who shoots that gun at the end. And it's a great enigma. And I think enigma is the word to use about Fernando Ray and Alan Charnier. Now, there's no sense of that whatsoever in French Connection 2, is there? Uh, yeah, he's a very he's a very ordinary boss. He, I mean, the only supernatural thing is that he seems to be forever on the verge of opening a bottle of red wine. Uh, <laughs> he's like literally every time you see him, he's pouring a glass of wine. It's like, okay, yeah, that's yeah. look, I I I I'm an expensive mob boss kind of thing, you know. But okay, and Daryl, hit me with your okay. I I've 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 just said that Charnier isn't a fantasy character in the French Connection. I I think. French Connection for me works much, much better if you treat parts of it as fantasy. Now, I'm going to start by talking about the um, character who's just billed as the old lady, again, very, very enigmatically. She's played by uh, Kathleen Nesbitt. And at the height of um, Popeye's enforced drug addiction, um, he's got heroin needles sticking out of his arm in this squalid sort of den that he's been imprisoned in and this vision appears to him she, but she's, she's portrayed as a real person but we find out nothing whatsoever about her she's billed as the old lady and she wanders in out of nowhere and she talks very very enigmatically to Popeye and my thoughts as I was watching that scene were oh, this is an interesting character. This is an interesting little twist. Where are they going with this? You know, she's obviously a sort of den mother or something, you know, and and um, how, how interesting that she sort of wandered in from nowhere. And what a great performance, you know. And then sort of thinking about the film later, especially in, in, in light of the ending of the film, which I'm going to talk about an interpretation of in a moment, I sort of think, was, was she actually real? Was, was she a, a, a sort of heroine hallucinated vision that Hackman has experienced there. And with that in mind, move on, move on to the ending of the film. We've been very, very disappointed by the way that Frankenheimer and the film have sort of portrayed, portrayed Fernando Ray. And also, although we've been pleased that the film hasn't copied the French connection, 
it sort of not copied it in a way that we haven't liked. And so we reached the finale. Um, again, I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to give too many spoilers here. But as you've already said, Adam, we get a situation at the end of the film, which is imitative of the French Connection famous car train chase. And what we've got is Hackman on foot or via a streetcar, via a tram, going through the streets of Marseille, chasing a boat. Now, Fernando Rey may be on that boat or he may not. We've, we've sort of seen a glimpse of somebody get on there. And again, Hackman's obsession kicks in here. He's convinced that it is Alan Charnier on this boat. And as the film plays out, the, the, I, I, I'm going to give no, no, as little spoilers here as I can. But as that scene plays out, there's more and more a sense of, oh, it's, it, it's definitely Charnier on the boat. It's definitely him. And then we, we get something very, very similar at the end of French Connection 2 to what we got at the end of the French Connection. I'm, I'm going to say no more than that for, for fear of spoilers. Now, that scene for me, I don't like that as, as, as a, a realistic finale. But if, if, if you've got this idea that maybe there's this sort of residue of heroin sort of, or whatever drug he's taken still in there, coupled with Popeye's absolute driven obsession that we recognise from the first movie, is he on a wild goose chase here? Has he convinced himself that Fernando Ray Alan Charnier is on that boat when he's not actually on the boat? And I'm leading myself to think that the whole last five or ten minutes of, of, of the film is a, 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 a mad fantasy of Popeye Doyle's. Now, many people may disagree with that interpretation, and I even disagree with it myself to a point, but I think it makes the film a better film. I think there's certain sequences in that, 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 that particular chase that are very different to everything else that happens in the movie. So you start yeah. to get POV shots. You yeah. see his hand in frame moving doors out of the way and, and going through through barriers. So you, it is, it's, it's shot very differently. So obviously, Frank and I want you to think that this is different to yeah, what's yeah. gone on prior. And I must have which, subconsciously picked up on that, I think, and thought, well, if he's saying it's different, is he saying it's not real. And again, the clues for me have been laid by other things in the movie because I, I don't buy that Popeye Doyle goes cold turkey and recovers from heroin addiction in, in a, a week or whatever. And again, that, make, that makes more sense if what Frankenheim is actually saying at the end of the film is, well, he hasn't. He's been rescued. I, I buy that he's been rescued and the police have done their best to sort of bring him round and get him back on the case. But it's a much better film for me if there is still this sort of residue of that sort of left over. And, and we, we, we see in the chase, especially the bits where he's on foot, there's this real sense of, of, um, of fat, sweaty copper. You know, he's chasing the boat on foot. But at various points, you think he's losing it. He's not going to keep up with this. You know, he's going to have to get a taxi or flag a car down or something again. If you take all this as fantasy, if you take all this as the delirious ramblings of, of heroin-affected Popeye 
and obsess Popeye's diseased mind and drive to catch a criminal no matter what. It makes a lot of sense. If you take it as Popeye knows that he's going after Alan Charnier and he knows that he's going to get him this time, it's it's not it's it's weaker. It's it's not a good climax to the film. Yeah, there's a couple of there's a couple of bits there where add fuel to your uh, flaming theory. Um, <laughs> there's uh, obviously the, the 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 hand the point of view shots suddenly in in the film. So it's to say that you are looking through Popeye's eyes here. Yeah, yeah. And then you also get the shots of the of the the person on the boat. And you see him on the boat, and you see the back of him. And then when you see Charnier later on in the scene, he's dressed completely different. Yeah, yeah. He's dressed as the sort of like drug baron, lord of the of all he surveys kind of thing, holding a glass of wine kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And 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 again, I'm 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 desperate to sort of skirt around this and avoid spoilers. But what I will say is. The very, very, very end of both films has, has has got similarity. That's that's all I'll say. And and the end of French Connection, as I've already said, in in an ultra realistic film based on a true story, the very, very, very end of the film is enigmatic, and we're not told what happens. Here we are told what happens, but because it's it's portrayed in the same way. Again, I'm thinking, is is there an element of enigma to this as well? Is am, am I right in thinking that it's Popeye's deranged hallucination? And for me, for me, if I interpret the film in that way, it's a better film. There was a lot of that kind of stuff in early seventies uh, cinema as well. You know, you oh, think like oh, yeah. Think, yeah. things like The Passenger and a lot of these sort of like Jack Nicholson films, where yeah, Clint, even Clint Eastwood westerns do it. You know, yeah, sure. uh, Outlaw Josie Wales and High Plains Drifter. You know, there's a lot of that. Is this really going on, or is this character a, a ghost or a figment or whatever? You know, and and yeah, it, it, it fed into a lot of early early seventies Hollywood. Cool. Well, I guess we'll never know. <laughs> yeah, which is great because it does allow me, you, and every other viewer out there to watch these films and to make their own interpretation. And I recommend that you do that with French Connection, and particularly with French Connection too. Before we finish, we, there is there is a third film. Yeah, there's a TV movie from the ni- mid eighties, nineteen eighty six, called Popeye Doyle. Now I've not seen this. I don't know if you have, Adam, but but the the fact that it's got Ed O'Neill playing Popeye Doyle and the fact that it's got Candy Clark as the female lead makes me want to see it. I would like to see it definitely. It obviously has didn't have the impact that the first two French connections French connections had in popular culture. Well, there, there's a point to make before we finish as well. French Connection, other, other than the Popeye Doyle TV movie. French Connection's not been remade. We've, we've lived through probably two or three waves of, of film thrillers and crime movies since the 70s, where you'd think the idea of a French Connection remake must have been mooted at some point around the studios. Why, why has it never been remade, do we think? I don't know. We've had two remakes of Taken a Pelham 1, 2, 3 yeah, in those yeah. times, so why not a French Connection? Um, I, guess, I guess maybe it's just the case of of it's still held in such high regard as an Oscar winner. You don't get that many big Oscar winners being remade like that. 
you know, there's not been a Godfather remake. There's not been a, um, I don't know, a MASH remake, uh, you know, film-wise, or, or or any of the big big Oscar winners from the 70s, those kind of yeah. Last Picture Show remake, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm sort of pleased in a way, because people talk about this all the time and how a certain breed of actor has died out. Who could remotely play Popeye Doyle? In, well, I, in the past twenty years, you know. Well, I think I think I think the problem with it is like, in, it, you, if you if you if you're going to remake it now and you update it now, modern policing don't have characters like Popeye Dial. Yeah, they just yeah, don't yeah, exist yeah. in that world yeah. anymore. There's there's other evil, horrible, uh, racist characters yeah. involved, but yeah. not that type where yeah. you know, damn the rules, that kind of stuff. We're going out on the streets and pounding pounding so, the pavement. So, so I guess if, if anyone was suggesting it, you'd have to do it as a 70s set period piece or a 60s set period piece, yeah. maybe, you know, and, uh, maybe, maybe that's not in vogue. So, uh, and, and again, I, I wonder if the people who play lead roles conventionally in, in this type of cinema at the moment, like a Keanu Reeves or someone, are, are they going to, or a Tom Cruise, somebody like, they're, they're not going to want to play grumpy old Popeye Doyle, the man you love to hate, are they? They're, they're going to want to play a guy who shoots people and, and that's not him, you know. No, no but you, you it's similar to how they cast the original French Connection. You wouldn't be looking at people like Keanu Reeves and that kind of level. You'd be looking at, um, I don't know, like a, a Tom Hiddleston or... A, yeah, a, a character actor. A character yeah. actor who... But are, are, there, are there the character actors around like... Gene Hackman, Bruce Dern, all all the guys we've talked about from the early seventies. I, I don't I don't think they exist anymore. You know, maybe not. But me, I can see a Tom Hardy doing that role or a Michael Fassbender, kind of gritty. Maybe, maybe not afraid of showing themselves in a in a relatively negative light. You know, that's possible. There's only one way to find out, Daryl. Let's remake the French Connection. <laughs> cool, lovely. Thank you very much, Daryl. What's that BFI and Quad for supporting these podcasts? I hope you enjoyed the one today, and there'll be another podcast in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, take care.